You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Turn to God's Word, Judges, chapter 4. Look with me as we continue our series in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 4 and 5, we'll be looking at both these chapters tonight. I'm going to read Judges 4, but I'm also going to refer to the song of Deborah in Judges 5 as well. We come tonight to another judge after Shamgar. So let us give heed to God's word. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim, because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading or judging Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours For the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. Ten thousand men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hohab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Harosheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued his chariot, pr- pr- pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, 
and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. Father, we pray for your insight, your help by the Spirit as we look to behold wondrous things out of your word, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When I was a boy, one of my favorite TV shows was The Lone Ranger. The ranger was a good guy. He was always righting wrongs and bringing about justice in the Wild West. And at the end of each episode, the lone ranger would always be riding away on his faithful horse, Silver, while two men from the episode would be conversing in the foreground One would say, who was that masked man anyway? And the other would reply, why, that's the Lone Ranger. And at that moment, the one man would produce a silver bullet, which the Lone Ranger had given him. And then you would uh, see the horse Silver rear rear up in the background and hear the Lone Ranger shout out, Hi-yo, Silver, away! And at which point the familiar score of the William Tell Overture would take, the, take away and conclude the episode with a triumphant conclusion. Maybe a little quaint or corny by today's standards. But I mention it because of the silver bullet part. According to the show, the silver bullet was the token of the Lone Ranger's presence. The mark that the Lone Ranger had been there. Well, there is no doubt that here in Judges 4, the mark of God's presence and God's work is that this general Sisera, the enemy of God's people, the cruel oppressor of the people of Israel, is dispatched by a woman, a non-Israelite woman at that, and by a hammer and a tent peg when he thought he was safe. God is using the weak things of the world and the things that are nothing in the world's eyes to confound and bring low the mighty, all to the praise of his sovereign power and grace and to highlight for us here that that the, the salvation God brings is his doing and it redounds to his glory and no one can take his glory. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's back up and look at this chapter more thoroughly as we seek to understand Judges 4. The first point I want us to see from our text is this, the constant need 
of God's people for God's deliverance. The constant need of God's people for God's deliverance, for God's help, for God to be at work in their lives. We see this again in the introductory part in verses 1, 2, and 3. We find that Ehud, the, the former main judge, had died. And we find this familiar sad refrain, verse 1. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin. And so there's this uh, Jabin, this Canaanite king, but the primary adversary is his henchman, General Sisera, that we read about here. And though at the end we come back to Jabin again and hear that the Israelites grow stronger and stronger until Jabin himself is defeated as well. But here are the Israelites. The last judge dies, and before you know it, they're once again doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord sells them. This language is so descriptive, isn't it? He sells them into the hands of their enemies, and they are oppressed. And General Sisera cruelly oppresses them with these 900 iron chariots. It's interesting, often commentators compare the iron chariots to modern-day tanks, but the idea of modern-day tanks is a military weapon which breaks through enemy lines. That's more the goal of it. But one commentator was saying that chariots were more killing vehicles that were used when the enemy was in retreat. They were used that when the enemy was fleeing across the open plains, they could be pursued and struck down through these chariots. So they were cruelly oppressed for 20 years, and they finally cry out to the Lord for help. The sad refrain, a people turning away from the Lord, a very bleak picture of the power and slavery of sins given to us here. And it's a refrain that we see in the book of Judges over and over. It becomes almost monotonous. We see here, again, as soon as the outward constraint of a judge judging them and apparently keeping them close to the Lord is removed, the people plunge back into idolatry. They return to their old ways. And that point in itself should remind us and point you and me to our great need for a Savior who can change our hearts from within, who can deliver us from sin's power from the inside out. We read in Deborah's song in chapter 5 another description of this same period of time. If you look ahead with me in chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, we have this poetic description of this same period of time. In verse 6 it says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the roads were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased. So what's being described there is the oppression. It was like they couldn't even take the main roads. Now, think of what the main roads in those days were like. It wasn't the turnpike. It wasn't Route 30 here. It wasn't even Oregon Pike. It was like a dirt path that a cart could get by. And those were the main roads. But what this verse is saying is that in those days, the roads, those for us, back roads, were abandoned, and the travelers took to winding paths. Imagine trails. That's what the Israelites were reduced to because of their idolatry and their sin. And they were, had to hide out on the back paths. Village life in Israel ceased. 
ceased until I, Deborah, arose. Arose a mother in Israel. Verse 8, when they chose new gods. Notice that emphasis on the idolatry that was at the heart of this. And I think that the emphasis here is the, the same old idols weren't enough. They, they wanted new foreign gods, and they picked some new ones this time. They chose new gods. War came to the city gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. In other words, they were so militarily subjected. There wasn't a shield or spear among 40,000 of them. That's the description of the doleful consequences of their sin. Deep oppression. A people sinking lower and lower in sin. But God doesn't allow them to be comfortable in their sin. He brings his discipline into their lives. He is a God who exercises a jealous love for his people. And so, finally, they cry out to the Lord. But again, we've noted that this phrase about them crying out is not really a cry of heart repentance. It's a cry of misery for the Lord to help them. My point is this. God's people are in constant need of God's mighty work. The danger here, I think, as we read back to Judges and the days of the Israelites, is a very easy danger for us to think, well, that was them and that's not us. We're so much more spiritual than they were. But we need to beware of of reading the book that way. You and I must not see ourselves as fundamentally different from these ancient Israelites. Yes, we live in the age of gospel reality. Jesus Christ has come and wrought his great once once and for all salvation by his cross and resurrection. And so he has done a great work and and done a great work in our hearts. But as we think about our spiritual walk, and if we think of ourselves apart from the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, our hearts tend in the very same direction as the Israelites, don't they? Don't we know our heart as the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Don't we find ourselves tempted with, quote, new, new gods and that are just the same old false gods in different clothing, different garb? The Apostle John says it well in 1 John. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the sinful pride of life, come not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires are passing away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And the exhortation of the the, the Apostle John to the church 2,000 years ago is the same exhortation that we need. Those same idolatries of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the sinful pride of life, there are still temptations to us as well. There is no new temptation under the sun. But the people of God are always in need of God's grace and God's power in their hearts and lives. And we must not forget that. Let's draw a point of application from this first point before we go on. And that's this. The godly Christian knows his or her constant need of God's grace and cultivates daily dependence on God. And that's not something new to most of us here. 
But think about that. The godly Christian knows his or her constant need of God's grace and cultivates daily dependence on God. Think about what's coming in your life this week. Think about the problems you face. Think about the happy things that are in your life. Think about the work you've got to do. Think about how you're going to spend your time. Do you know, is there an active awareness in your heart and life that you are constantly in need of God's grace? And as a result, are you cultivating daily dependence on Him? You see, prayer arises not so much from self-control or self-discipline. That may be part of it. But prayer arises primarily because of a sense, a knowledge of our need for God's grace. And if we don't have that sense of our need, then we won't be praying. The godly Christian doesn't look at the ancient Israelites and think, how could they be so stupid? How could they be so unspiritual? No, he thinks, there but for the daily keeping grace of my Lord Jesus Christ go I. Our hearts are prone in the same direction. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Ask yourself, do I honestly see my need for God's power and grace every day, or do I live pretty much out of my own sufficiency? Isn't it easy to do that? The Israelites cried out to the Lord, finally, and ask yourself, do I cry out to him for the relationships in my family and extended family? Do I cry out to the Lord about the way I do my work and the trials and the hardships and the aspects of my work that I don't like? Do I cry out to the Lord about how I drive my car? That convicts some of us, I'm sure. Do I cry out to the Lord about how I spend my time? Do I cry out to the Lord about my thought life? Do I cry out to the Lord about what I really cherish and value in life? Do I cry out to the Lord for a heart for spreading the gospel and for an increased zeal for those who don't know Christ? You see, those are all ways that we need to be dependent constantly on the grace of God. Hebrews 3.12 puts it well. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The author of the book of Hebrews knew that we needed God's grace daily, that the temptation was for us to be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And so there needs to be fresh coming to the Lord and looking to Him for grace. And so we see, first of all, our constant need for God's grace. Secondly, we learn from our text, our God sovereignly works to save his people and to deliver them from all their enemies. Our God works to save his people and to deliver them from all their enemies. A clear emphasis in this chapter is that God sovereignly works to deliver his people. And we see the action of the chapter build as it goes along here. Actually, many commentators think that verse 14 is what you might call the hinge of chapter 4 where we read, Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? This declaration that the Lord has given Sisera into Barak's hands. And the, the action of the chapter builds that point and then goes from that point. Well, the action begins in chapter 4 with Deborah introduced to us in verse 4, prophetess, 
And she is described briefly to us. And then she sends for Barak, and he comes to her. And we find her giving him this word from the Lord in verses 6 and 7. She says to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure the Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. So Deborah gives Barak this clear command, this clear word from the Lord, militarily how he is supposed to proceed. And it's very clear he's supposed to uh, recruit this militia and assemble at Mount Tabor, and then it's clear that the Lord is going to fight for them. But his response is given to us in verse 8. He said to her, if you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Most commentators would see this hesitancy as an indication of unbelief or fear to some extent, and most likely it is. Others argue that, no, he just wants the Lord's presence there through Deborah so that if there is a need for that, she's there. But I take the view that it is out of hesitation and fear. It's very similar to what we'll see next week with Gideon in chapter 6. And he hesitates and wants to do, wants guidance from the Lord, and we know the story about the fleece. And so as a result of his hesitancy, We find in verse 9, Deborah says, Very well, I will go with you, but because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So it's declared to him that he's not going to get the glory. But if you had never read Judges 4, who is the woman that you would think is going to get the glory? You would think it's Deborah, right? That would make sense. Deborah's the one who's going to get the glory because Barak was afraid. But that's not how it turns out. We know the end of the story. And so Barak goes along and raises the troops. And and then in verse 11, it's interesting that there's this seemingly strange aside. We find out about Heber, the Kenite, and the fact that he leaves the other Kenite descendants and he moves It's like you were reading the story of the Battle of Gettysburg and inserted in there is some story about a foreigner who lived in Virginia and who moved up to Pennsylvania, something like that. It just breaks the action. And again, if you don't know how the story is going to go, you think, why are we hearing about this non-Israelite and where he moved? Well, we're going to see why. It's because of Heber's wife. She's the one who's going to get the glory. So we're told about that, and then it goes back in verse 12 to the battle and the uh, armies coming together here. And then we find that the battle takes place, and we find in verse 15, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. Now, in the song, this is more poetically described. And it may be when the song describes it, and it it describes, O Lord, when you went out from Seir, in verse 4, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the cloud poured down water. It may be that there was a great rainstorm, and commentators speculate that these iron chariots got mired in water and mud and couldn't 
negotiate the terrain. We're not sure of that, but it's possible that that's the case. But in any case, the Israelites are victorious, and General Sisera flees. He flees on, on foot, and in verse 17, we find him coming to the tent of Jael, and we know the story. It goes on to describe how she, in a very graphic way, put him to death. But it's interesting, the details are mostly about Jael putting an end to Sisera. There's very little detail given about Deborah and introducing her or Barak and where he's from or anything about what he does. There's very little detail about the battle itself. It tells where it was fought. But then a, a disproportionate number of verses are given to this blow-by-blow account of Jael doing in Sisera. And I think that's because the idea here is that this deliverance is clearly from the Lord. It is the Lord, God, the warrior, who goes forth. And it's interesting in chapter 5, verse 10, when this is being described, it, it says it this way, you who ride on white donkeys, sitting on your saddle blankets. Those are the ones that are driving the real luxury SUVs of the day. They're the wealthy of society, so think about that. And you who walk along the road, that's the end of society, the other end of society, those who didn't have the SUV, you know, luxury cars, consider the voice of the singers at the watering places. That's at the public gathering places of the town. They recite the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts of his warriors in Israel. It's a declaration of the righteous acts of the Lord. The Lord is the one who sovereignly defeats the enemy and lifts the oppression from the nation. So the language, the details, all of it focuses in on the sovereign working of God. He's the one who oversaw where Heber the Kenite moved. He's the one who delivered Sisera to jail's front tent door. He's the one who routed the army and who made the chariots not work if there was a rainstorm. The deliverance is clearly from the Lord. There's no doubt about it. It's the silver bullet that is the sign that God is at work. What applications can we draw from this second point? One is this. It is a perilous thing to crush and oppress God's people. There are many places in the world today where God's people are being cruelly oppressed and crushed. You only have to read the news to find that out. You might have to search a little bit in the news, but it's there. And part of the reason why we Western Christians may not get that much out of the book of Judges is that we have never been cruelly oppressed and crushed in our lifetime. We sit comfortably in our family rooms uh, with our plenty of food and plenty of heat on cold days and air conditioning on warm days. But we have brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are giving their lives for their testimony to Jesus Christ. And the Western press may not very often bring these things to light, but God knows those who are His, and He will surely fight on their behalf. And it is a perilous thing for people to crush 
the people of God. He fights for those who are his. I like the way the Heidelberg Catechism puts it when it talks about praying about the kingdom of God coming. And it says, what is the second petition of the Lord's prayer? And what is taught by that? It says that the answer to that is rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you, keep your church strong and add to it, destroy the devil's work, destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your word. Do this until your kingdom is so complete and perfect that in it you are all in all. In other words, the catechism talks about God's enemies and ours. God, part of God's kingdom coming in this world is that he fights for those who belong to him. Now, he does that in a deeply mysterious way. And the second application to this point is that God's people should find comfort in God's sovereign care. It's, always, it's not always clear how he works out all of that. But we are to pray Thy kingdom come. And the ultimate answer to that prayer comes in only two forms, really. People being brought to Christ through the gospel or ultimately people experiencing the final judgment of God. What we heard this morning in our sermon this morning, the final judgment of God. Those are the only two options for those who oppose the kingdom of God and His work. Either they're going to be turned to Christ by God's grace become willing servants and sons and daughters of Christ, and their sins are going to be judged on the cross, or they're going to experience the justice of God in hell. The overthrow of Sisera and his army is a preview of what God will do when he finally conquers all his enemies and ours. And we see this final application, this uh, final verse of Deborah's song in chapter 5, verse 31, summarizing all that we have seen, it says, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. That is a prayer for the enemies of God to be defeated. And of course, the enemies of God that we think primarily of now in this age are the spiritual forces set against the Lord and against His anointed. But certainly there are human manifestations of them. God's ways are very mysterious, as I just said. Sometimes he delivers his people in stunning acts of deliverance, but sometimes he takes his people to glory, and evil seems to triumph for a time. And whichever way it is, our God is sovereign. And Judges 4 says, people of God, trust in your God. Be comforted in him and know that He rules and He reigns. Always, God's people can take comfort in our sovereign God. But this brings me to my last point, and that's really the one that we began with when we talked about the Lone Ranger, and that is this. The sovereign God delights to use weak vessels for His glory. The sovereign God delights to use weak vessels for His glory. Here's where we especially see the sign of God at work. If we look at chapter 4 and we ask, what is the author emphasizing? 
Well, one of the ways that the book of Judges speaks and is, it emphasizes things is by the amount of detail it gives. And it gives the uh, description of what Jael did very clearly. And then in the song, you'd think that the, the song wouldn't have to go into that again. I'm not going to read it all, but if you, if you look at chapter 5, verses 24 to 27, it's almost like the song of Deborah gives a slow-motion picture of this very gory ending of Sisera's life. It's like you slow down the VCR and see it frame by frame of what she's doing here. And it's presented to us in a favorable light. We read this and we start thinking, what about the ethical implications of this? Was this right for her to do this? Well, one thing is clear. Jael is praised in this song. And, uh, you know, there are many things that the Bible just reports or records that are things that are wrong, that are sinful, multiple wives, for example, the Old Testament reports on that, but it never endorses that. This is a case that I don't think it's just reporting. It's looking at it in a good light. So, we have this description in detail both in Judges 4 and Judges 5. And there's an interesting uh, contrast. In fact, two contrasts are drawn, especially in the song. And I want us to look there. In verses 24 to 27, we have the description of jail and what she did. But then there's a contrast to Sisera's mother. It's interesting here because the narrative doesn't give us this account at all. But look at verses 28 through 30. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice, she cried out, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answer her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A girl or two for each man? Color for garments as plunder for Sisera? Color for garments embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck? All this as plunder? What a description. At the very time, apparently, when Sisera is meeting his end, his mother, back in his home area, apparently surrounded by possibly his harem, are looking out the window saying, she's essentially saying, where is my boy? Where is my son? And she's being comforted by these other women there who are saying, don't worry, he's getting you lots of plunder, garments, embroidered things. In fact, it's a gruesome thought, but in verse 30, it talks about what these soldiers were doing, a girl or two for each man, for each man. It's actually literally a womb or two wombs for each man is the actual text. So it's talking about plunder, oppression, pillage, and we know that she's never going to see her son again. It's a contrast. You might even say it's holy sarcasm relishing in and delighting in God's victory over those who oppress people of God. But there's another contrast that is drawn in the psalm. It's drawn in a twofold way. We look at the description of Jael again, but if you look at the verse right before she's described, verse 23 has this enigmatic statement. Curse Merah's, said the angel of the Lord, curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord to help the Lord against the mighty. 
Now, no one knows for sure where the little village of Meraz is, but most likely it was an Israelite village near the battle so that when Sisera fled, this village could have helped, could have helped find him, could have helped stop him, but they didn't. And they're cursed by the angel of the Lord for it because, interesting phrase, they did not come to help the Lord. How often do we hear the Bible talk about helping the Lord? We don't usually think that way. We say the Lord doesn't need any help. But it's described this way, to help the Lord against the mighty. Sisera is in view here. But even a wider contrast than that, Jael helped, the village of Meraz didn't. Jael is blessed and praised the village of Meraz is cursed. There's also tribes of Israel who are mocked here in this song because they refuse to come as well. We've, we get a listing of the six tribes that, that did help. By the way, that's about the most unity of the tribes of Israel we're going to see in the entire book until the very end when the tribes ally against Benjamin, one of their own. But here we see a listing in verses 14 and 15 of the tribes that do participate in this war. But then in the middle of verse 15, we read this. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the campfires? To hear the whistling for the flocks? In the district of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. So Reuben apparently thought about it a lot. They searched their hearts a lot, but... They couldn't quite come. They just couldn't leave their sheep. Verse 17, Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. So Dan and Asher, likewise, they were too busy with their enterprise, sailing their ships and doing business. They couldn't leave that as well. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the heights of the field. This is an indictment of the tribes of Israel who wouldn't come to help. Again, contrasts are being drawn. Jael did come. Jael was willing, and she gave herself. And she is to be praised. But others sat on the sidelines. Doesn't it remind us of Luke 14, the excuses that those brought that Christ says, I have just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. that, That would have been a hilarious line to someone. That's like buying a car without trying it. I've got, I bought some oxen. I need to try them out. You would never do that. You would try.